This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number six of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined here today by another special guest. She is an iOS developer at Topology Eyewear. She recently moved to San Francisco from Budapest, where she was organizing the NS Budapest meetup. And she also co-organized the Craft Conference and the Budapest edition of Functional Swift. It's Agnes Vasharhai. Welcome to the show, Agnes. Thank you so much, John. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. How are things over in the, uh, in the Golden State in San Francisco? It's fabulous. I'm here in the sunny California. I love living here. Everything's great. That's awesome. So you've done the thing that many people in, in our industry think about. You know, they, they work on iOS and they work on different technologies and they read about Silicon Valley and hear about, you know, how it's like there and thinking about moving there. But you've actually done that. So what's it been like to kind of move from Europe to, uh, to the US and to California? Honestly, I thought it's going to be more challenging, um, you know, to move from such a different place, uh, like Eastern Europe, uh, to right here to Silicon Valley. But honestly, it's just, I feel like I was already living in the bubble of tech over there. And so I moved to like another bubble of tech. So I feel like I'm, I'm very lucky to, to be able to fit right in here. It might not be a natural thing uh, regarding the other parts of the world, but moving inside tech is not as tricky as just moving to any other parts of the world, probably. Yeah, that's a good point. We're, we're already in a very international uh, industry. And, you know, every day I have contact with people from like all over the world. So it, uh, it kind of makes sense, right, to, to move abroad and to, to try something new. Because as you say, it's, it's a little bit easier than if you were, for example, a lawyer or something, which is very, a very regional profession, right? Exactly. Yeah. Also, you know, the, the developers, I mean, I'm not really in other fields of tech. But, you know, in iOS, we just, I feel like we stick together or we have like this, this close relationship to all the other folks online. So once I got here, I met so many people whom I already knew from online. And it was great to finally catch up in real life. And there are lots of events, lots of you know, opportunities to socialize. So it feels, it feels friendly, welcoming, a bit weird because everyone's a software engineer, but. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So you now work at Topology Eyewear, which is a really interesting company, I think, really cool product. Uh, I haven't had the opportunity to try it myself because correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not available in Europe yet, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, so our app is in the US store. Yeah. For now, uh, we just launched um, two months ago, I think. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, so it is indeed very interesting because it is actually a hardware startup. So we're manufacturing eyewear, actually right in the office. So we have um, we have this workshop area where engineers are working on um, manufacturing glasses. And the other part of the office is like the software engineering part where we are working on this app where our customers can, um, you know, take a selfie and then just design their glasses based on the, the 3D model we're creating based on their measurements. So it's like face ID for glasses. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds, it sounds really cool. And I can't wait to try it out because I wear glasses and, uh, you know, getting glasses that fit, especially online can be really tricky. So mm -hmm. yeah, it sounds, it sounds really interesting. Yeah, this is, this is, this is the core of our business, uh, the perfect fit. So with the power of uh, these cool technologies, you can, you can get these accurate model of a person and then just render the glasses. So you have this AR view where you can try on your future glasses that's perfectly fit to your face. And then we manufacture them one by one for each person right here. It's pretty cool. Wow, that is really cool. Mm -hmm. So when you saw the announcement of the new iPhone 10 and you know there's the new IR camera, there's this dot projector, that must be pretty exciting for someone who works in like the AR field and does this kind of does this kind of product, right? Oh yeah, it seems like Apple is catching up. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, uh, yes, it it is quite uh, exciting. I so this is very funny because actually looking at the the pictures from from the sessions, uh, it actually looked like our app. So we have this, we have this funny debug view where you press on the button and this 3D model on your face appears with all the dots, uh, from the face recognition. So it's, uh, it's, it's very funny to see like, oh, hey, we already have that. <laughs> wow. But you're able to do that from just a single 2D camera image. I mean, there's no additional hardware involved, obviously, because you can do it on the current current iPhones. Yes. So um, we we make a video. So the selfie you take of your face is a video. So we that's how we are able to create a 3D model. It's being done on the server for now. Okay. So you take the video and then you send it to the server and the server kind of does the processing and sends the kind of data back that you use to render the, the 3D model of the glasses. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah, that sounds that sounds really cool. It is. Yeah, nice. So uh, before you started uh, at Topology, you were over in Budapest, where it, and that's where I met you uh, earlier this year when I attended NS Budapest. Yes. Um, so you have been organizing meetups and conferences, etc. And uh, just be interesting to hear kind of what got you into that? Like, what about organizing conferences is kind of interesting to you? Because as someone who speaks a lot at conferences, I am super grateful for people like yourself, you know, who, who take it upon themselves to organize these things. So how did you kind of get into that? Interesting question. Um, I think that was 
There was a point a few years ago, I was, while I was working at Prezi, I started going to meetups. I, I didn't even know there's such a thing as a meetup. So I started visiting meetups, um, mostly at Prezi because they were hosting lots of meetups. And so uh, there was this meetup called Native Development Meetup. And once um, one of the guests was Chris Eithoff. All right. So I, I met him there. And then I think he was the first intern, fir first person from the international community visiting a meetup that I was attending. So I, I just started to realize the power of these events. Like, wow, is this possible to invite someone from, you know, not Budapest? <laughs> yeah. And then just things turned around and I don't know, I somehow ended up being the organizer of the meetup. And then um, Chris Edhoff invited me to speak at the Functional Swift conference in Brooklyn in 2015. And so that was my first, that was my first conference talk. And things just, you know, went went even more crazy after that. Like people started um, asking me to to speak at conferences and I asked other people I met at conferences to speak in Budapest. So I had this I had this pitch that I told everyone like Budapest is the most romantic central <laughs> European city. It's so cool. You should visit the iOS developers are so nice. So somehow people started saying yes, and I had, I had several companies like like Prezi, Bitrise, Ustream. They were all you know supporting me, uh, my efforts financially. So I could I could organize these events, invite people from from abroad, and uh, they all got me covered. So I think it was I was in a very lucky position of knowing lots of people. Uh, locally and internationally, so I, I was I was actually just playing this, you know, person in 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 the in the middle between communities. So I just had to connect people to each other, and then now it's now it's actually the the meetup is running without me. So I think it's just the matter of someone putting lots of effort into it, and the fact that everyone is nice and everyone have you know good intentions and want to share knowledge so i think it's just a good mix of nice people yeah yeah that's that's really that's really cool and it's really cool to hear um because i have also kind of similar uh, experiences but i haven't actually organized the conference yet but uh, I also started uh, in 2015, actually, the same year, uh, mm -hmm. to just go to my first conference. You know, I was very nervous. I had no uh, experience kind of going to conferences and speaking. And then all of a sudden, I kind of found myself just getting into this world and knowing more people and getting more involved with the community. And this is all also where I started realizing that the thing I enjoy the most about being an iOS developer is being a part of the community, uh, both in open source and speaking and going to conferences and meetups. And yeah, it's it's really been amazing to, to just get into this world and getting to know all these people from all around the world and, and you know, sharing all these ideas and yeah, just, uh, just having a good time. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Really cool. Um, 
So what do you say? Should we uh, start diving into our questions? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So as you know, this show is all about answering questions and talking about topics that are submitted by you, the listeners. And it's really the backbone of this show. So if you have something that you'd like us to talk about in a future episode, uh, make sure to send it in. Uh, the easiest ways to go to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, where there's a form where you can submit a question or topic, or you can just tweet to at swiftbysundell on Twitter, and it'll get picked up, and we'll talk about your topic in a future episode. So we're going to warm up today with a little bit of a non-technical question, and those are also really welcome. Uh, it's really cool to sometimes talk about a bit, a bit about things that are maybe not super related to Swift specifically, but really involve, really affect us as Swift developers and talking about teamwork and these kind of things. So we have a question here from Gabor, Gabor Nagy Farkas, who is our mutual friend from Budapest. Mm -hmm. And he's asking, is there a difference in the development culture in the US versus in Hungary? So kind of what you've experienced moving from Hungary to the US working with uh, with programming and software? Great question. Um, so as I mentioned before, uh, since this is the, the city of developers, um, my experience might be, you know, very special, not US versus Hungary in general. But so here, as far as I can tell, there are there is a bit more competition um, because there are tons of tech companies, lots of great places, and they're all looking for engineers. So this, this creates a very different atmosphere. So I think there is more, more competition for individuals. And that means um, bigger companies, for example, they, you know, they have all the benefits and um, all these all these great things they can offer for people to work with them. And I think people are more uh, spoiled here, if I can use this <laughs> word. Uh, I felt like um, the only difference between the tech bubble in, in Eastern Europe or the tech bubble in here is that this is, uh, this is a very rich place and you can see that. Um, in actual work, I don't see much difference. Um, I had the luck to work with excellent engineers in the past. I'm working with excellent engineers at the moment. I I can't really raise uh, or uh, raise an example of of any huge difference between the two development cultures, except all these external um, influences as you know the the actual difference between the two country economically or whatever. Yeah. Um, in in more details, I'm not sure which part of the development culture is in question, but I also think there's there's a difference between working at a startup here and working at a startup at home. Um, and this is also mostly a 
financial questions. So I think if you have like a startup with lots of potential in Silicon Valley, you more likely to, you know, reach a, reach a point, uh, with your funding or any kind of financial support where you can actually just go out and develop and experiment. Um, whereas in Eastern Europe, it's, it's lot, it's a lot harder to, to even start out with something like that because, uh, it's, it's very, I think it's a lot more difficult to raise money there. Yeah, because a lot of the investors are also uh, in Silicon Valley, right? And that's kind of what they're looking at primarily. Exactly. So by being there, I guess you're just kind of physically closer to these people who are making those calls. Yeah. So it 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 means I have I have the opportunity to to work at a place that you know already has all these resources and being being very special uh, in a way that it's a hardware startup and we're three people doing iOS now. Uh, we, we work very closely to each other. So like in more, in more day-to-day, uh, in, in that aspect, we, I think we are, we are like a, a very, a startup is set up where we work, we work close, closely to each other and designers and we you know we come up with things together uh we mostly know what the others are working on so it's for now it's a very small team but i i couldn't raise any difference um between being in the u.s or the hungary in yeah the- i I think you hit on a on a point there, which I I haven't worked in the U.S., uh, but I've worked a lot with U.S. teams, and my observation is that it's more the culture more comes down to the company itself rather than where it is, uh, yeah. because as we talked about before, we are more of an international community anyway. So if you work in Poland or in the U.K. or in Sweden or in the U.S., a tech company is kind of a tech company. But the size and the the product and the people and the the kind of culture that gets formed, uh, I think it varies a lot between different companies more rather than different countries. Cool. So let's move now over to the second question, if you don't mind. Um, mm-hmm. And now we're going to get a little bit more technical. We're going to talk about architecture. And this one comes from Gilad uh, Ronat, and he is at Gilad uh, Ronat on Twitter. And he's asking, what are some of the architectural decisions or trade-offs you made in parts of the app? So when working on topology, uh, on the topology iWare app, have you made any tough architectural decisions yet? (laughs) Um, Oh, I never mentioned I joined the company half a year ago. Right. So (laughs) I... (laughs) So you've completely changed the architecture by now, right? Uh, no, definitely <laughs> not. So, um, yeah, I've I've been working on um, big chunks of the code, but um, I haven't, you know, come up with the architecture. Um, but we are definitely free to, you know, work with any kind of patterns or or ideas that makes sense. So um, what I'm doing at Topology is 
it isn't textbook MVC and it's not really MVVM either. What I'm trying to work out is something that's, you know, that's always simple and maintainable. So um, what I usually do is um, we work, we mostly work with MVC, which we're trying to make it, um, make it sensible in a way, you know, that it's, it's a, it's a clean architecture. Um, like we move logic out of the view. So the view controller is just a view. Um, I'm sometimes adding view models, but this is just for, you know, trying to come up with a, with a good name for something between, between data and its representation on the UI. So it's, it's, it's not really, uh, either. I don't have a name for it. Right. Like MVVM-ish. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I I do very similar things. I also use MVC, but then I love to, like you say, extract sometimes some of the like view, bi like data to view binding logic uh, into a view model, but it might not be a view model as you would think about it if you were doing like textbook MVVM, right? Mm -hmm. Where the view model is a much larger, more important object. It's more just like a middleman, right? Or a middle, middle layer between uh, the view and the model itself. Yes, it's it's very convenient. Um, when I'm when I'm coming up with new things, and uh, sometimes I feel like maybe it's an overkill to to add the view model for for this type um, to to represent this type uh, on a more like somewhere between the view and the model. But then the next time, like month later, I need to. Um, you know, uh, display the same type, same kind of uh, information, but on somewhere, you know, on a different part of the UI. And I realized like, oh, well, I actually implemented a view model for it. So now I can just use it. And then it makes all sense. So um, I'm not, I, I don't always come up with these um, for the first time. But I try to think about um, the fact that we're a startup, we move fast, we change the design a lot, we, we iterate on that, even the navigation or all the screens, we do a lot of experiments. So it can actually happen that, you know, I'm going to use that part of the app in different parts of the UI. So... Uh, these are these are the things I keep in mind. Yeah, and I guess that's a trade-off in of itself, right? That you know that you are moving fast, you are iterating a lot on the product, uh, and you're setting things up to be easily changed and also you know quickly reused. If you're you know you, one day you want to move one part of the app into another part, you could just kind of reuse the same view model, so you don't have to rewrite everything from scratch. Exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I tend to do very, uh, have a very similar approach. Mm -hmm. uh, I also try to stick to kind of vanilla MVC as much as possible because I feel, you know, Apple is pushing this very hard. And, you know, if you're not using MV uh, MVC, it can sometimes be challenging to integrate well with UIKit. So oh, yeah. I try to, yeah, so I try to stick to that as much as possible. But then 
Of course, you don't want MVC to turn into massive view controller, right? <laughs> yeah. So you want to make sure to abstract things out. Like one example is uh, in one of the apps I'm working on right now, uh, we have some like core data models that are used in many different view controllers. So before all of these different view controllers, they kind of had their own you know, way of fetching this model. They were kind of network aware. They were loading things uh, you know, from the backend and forming these models. And now instead, we've kind of abstracted all that out into services where each view controller, they can just ask for a certain specific piece of data from a service. And then the service itself can do the networking, it can handle the caching, and the view controllers can be a lot more thin because they don't have to be aware of these details. They can just ask for the data when they need it. I see, very interesting. Um, we have, I think, I think we have a, a, a slightly different um, setup. So since we have like one piece of uh, backend infrastructure that we are communicating to, uh, we don't have, for example, user management for now. Uh, we only have like processing on the server or uh, just uh, moving files from from the app to to like a storage and back. So for that, we're we have like a a, a layer of uh, operations um, and and. There is like there is like a layer of of jobs that we are working with in the app, and there is like another layer another layer of um, the actual data representation um, for for all the you know the faces uh, in the app. Yeah. So the the actual view controllers are not that close to to any kind of services because this is like all the job management it's it's like a very a very different part of the in infrastructure so we don't you know pull data and represent it on UI uh, we have like a process um, that's from several steps and at the end you get something but that's not close to the actual representation of the UI, so I think it's a it's a little bit different than, um, you know, asking for for like a list of data and and displaying it on the UI. Yeah, because you have a lot more heavy data, I guess, and you know it needs to go through a bunch of pipelines before you know a UI can be presented, right? Yeah. So, All right. Thanks, Gilad, for the question. Yeah, great question. Um, really great question. So let's move over now to question number three. And this one comes from also our friend, uh, Sash Satz, and he is at Satz on Twitter. And he's asking about the new cool trend called <laughs> augmented reality. And you're doing a lot of augmented reality. So he's asking, how is writing and debugging an AR heavy app different from a regular app? Are there any, is there any special infrastructure that you developed and any workarounds for the simulator? Very good question. And the answer might gonna be disappointing because yes, we are working on this AR heavy app and it's very cool, but I actually don't work on those parts. So um, <laughs> we, we work with uh, Syncit and Metal. So it is 
very interesting and it's great to you know have the opportunity to just peek into that part of the code from time to time and try to understand what's going on but i'm not a graphics programmer so um i'm just like uh on a very very basic level try to understand how um these objects live in our app so more like from the from the consumer part where i i know there's like a there's like a word of graphics code living in our app that i you know touch from the outside from time to time and i i have usually no idea what i'm doing so i i try to um look up documentation and understand what kind of objects are these um what i know for a fact that it's not possible with our app for uh, to debug it in the simulator for now. Um, it was actually not possible to build and run our app in the simulator for a while. I think it was because of Metal. Yeah, I've, I've faced a similar uh, kind of problems when working with Metal. Like yeah, I was working, uh, I was implementing my game engine that I'm working with using Metal for a while. And yeah, it doesn't run on the simulator, so I had to use a fallback like core animation on the simulator, uh, and then try to run on device instead. How do you how do you do that? So you just um, replace all the codes. I mean, I mean, you just use the core animation. Yeah. So what I did was that I abstracted the rendering code into a protocol that I called a rendering context, mm -hmm. and then I had an implementation of it for Metal, where like I had APIs that the engine could call into to render textures and move objects around, and then I could have an another implementation of uh, of that same protocol but using core animation, mm -hmm. and I could have a third one for testing. So that architecture was was actually really nice for for many different reasons. Um, eventually, I actually just went with core animation instead. So now the engine I work on is just based on core animation. But I still think it's a it's a nice kind of abstraction to use when you're working with these like hardware sensors and cameras and rendering APIs to kind of create this like a little bit of an abstraction for yourself, a very thin one that is kind of protocol oriented, so that you can mock things and you can have fallbacks in the simulator. That's very interesting. Why was it uh, why was it so important to to run in the simulator that you actually implemented the same thing in with another technology? Mostly just for speed of development. Like I work in so many different weird places <laughs> where I can't <laughs> really comfortably have a phone that is debugging and attached. And now you can do wireless debugging, which is better. Mm -hmm. But for example, I'm working a lot on planes and airports and, <laughs> you know, uh, sitting in my couch working. And for that, I just wanted to be able to run on a simulator in a nice way. Uh, so I didn't always have to connect to my device. Mm-hmm. It is very convenient. So when once one of the one of the persons on the team um, delivered this feature to be able to you know run in the simulator, uh, it was, turned out to be pretty convenient to just work on UI stuff. Like uh, you can run any kind of device there. So it's 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 much easier to work on the UI in the simulator, I think. Yeah, you get much tw quicker turnarounds. So you don't have to, you know, copy all the things over to the device. It just can. Yeah. yeah, it's just more convenient and easy, especially if you like 
like you say, when you're working on something that is not directly related to the thing the hardware is needed for, like the UI or, or different things. But I guess with AR, you know, mocking the camera is not really easy. <laughs> you kind of need to have uh, the real thing in order to actually be able to work on that. Yeah, so it's, uh, since it's not real time, so once you had done that video of yourself and we processed it, uh, we have this thing called the try-on view. So if you if you use the app and you made a selfie of yourself and you open it up and you can you know play with it, design your glasses, you can also buy it. Um, <laughs> nice you, plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that is our kind of AR view, and that is you know that's a video with glasses rendered on that. So yeah. We don't need the camera for that view, but we need model. Um, so it's just empty on the simulator. Uh, I think it's 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 fine. So if you don't directly work on that view, um, it's it's not a problem at all. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, we so we haven't developed any special infrastructure yet, but we're we are looking for a graphics programmer at the moment. So I think all of these, as we, you know, evolve as a company, um, these things are getting more mature with time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the first thing you're doing when you're a startup is not, okay, let's spend three years building infrastructure. Uh, it's more make it up as you go, right? Yeah, but I'm, I'm very excited and, and looking forward to you know, have someone on the team with, with experience in these things because um, I think it's it's very it's a very interesting part of my work that I can you know now I now I get to see um, how manufacturing works. I get to talk to mechanical engineers uh, about their processes, their their workflow. I get to peek into the, the the whole vision industry I, I i get to you know understand more about graphics programming not just yet maybe but i i'm i'm really happy to have the opportunity so very very exciting topic yeah sounds sounds really cool and we can put a link in the show notes to the job application uh, or the job description if someone out there is interested in this stuff and wants to check it out Oh, definitely. Thanks. Cool. So that was a really great question. Uh, now we have another one, which is a very commonly asked question, and it's about how to get started with iOS development. So this uh, comes from someone who calls themselves View Did Appear on Twitter, <laughs> which I think is a, it's very a great, great handle. Um, and this person uh, asks, uh, what is some great advice for someone who is getting started with iOS development about eight or nine months ago? Uh, what are your thoughts about that? So as I said, this is a very common question. And I thought the way we could kind of talk about it is just by starting just very briefly uh, mentioning kind of how we got started uh, with iOS development. So how did you get started, Agnes, with, uh, with iOS development? I think it's a very boring story. I start, <laughs> I studied iOS development at the university. Oh, you Hungary. did? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So um, it was, uh, when was it? I think it was in 2012. 
Um, I was I was studying at the computer engineering at the university in Hungary, and I was so lucky to to get into the first ever class of iOS development in that school. So there were some guys um, who were actually working in the industry for years, and they were working with, I think they started with Mac development, and then they immediately opted in for iOS, obviously, when, um, when the opportunity came up. And then they were so nice, like they went back to the university and they were teaching kids like me to iOS. And so right after I finished school, I did, I haven't even finished it yet. I, I just applied for an internship at a company and they immediately hired me. Like there was no iOS developers in that country before. Wow. I think we were probably part of the first, I don't know, 50 people um, doing it. So those guys, oh, I, I still, I'm still in contact with one of those guys who, who were, you know, teaching me iOS development. And he's, he's doing it ever since. He's running a startup called Shapers 3D, uh, working on this amazing, um, CAD app for the iPad Pro. So it's very, it's still very inspiring to see like all the people who, who started the same class or um, have been there as a teacher are still in the same profession, just, you know, pushing it further and further. So yeah, that's really amazing. And they, they still teach these classes as well. I think think there are other people teaching that class. Oh, okay, right. So them. it's yeah, it's been passed on to the next the next group. The of next people. generation. <laughs> the next generation. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, it is. How about you? So I got started kind of just tinkering with iOS in my spare time. I was not even working as a full-time developer back then. Uh, so I wanted to like get into it. So I this was like in the really early days of the iOS SDK. I was uh, sitting, you know, at home, uh, trying to learn Xcode, trying to learn Objective C, uh, and I wanted, of course, to make games. This has kind of been uh, the thing that has driven so much of kind of my progression as a developer is games. You know, I always want to make games for everything. You know, new Apple TV comes out, let's make games for that. So <laughs> there's there's always games. Um, so I was just kind of learning on my own. I was reading, um, you know, material online. I was tinkering around with it, trying to make sense of it, uh, learning by from tutorials, and just by you know reading what people were posting online and things like that. So, I guess if we should segue a little bit into what kind of advice we have for beginners, uh, I think from for me it would be to be very curious and also to have something like that, like your passion that. What is it that makes you want to be an iOS developer to begin with? For me, that was games, like 100%. I wanted to make games. So I was learning because of that. And because of that, I was always motivated to, you know, go in and read things online and check blogs and videos and, uh, and try to just like learn, learn on my own. And now also, I mean, that was like in the super early days of iOS development. Now there are so many great resources available. I mean, you have 
great conferences, you have videos from those conferences, you have great blogs, you have podcasts <laughs> uh, about Swift developments. Uh, so there are so many things that you can learn from. Uh, so I think my just biggest advice would just be to be really curious and just, you know, explore things and try them out and see what you like. What do you think, Agnes? Um, yeah. And I also have a comment to to your last statement. So yes, there are so many resources out there. I also think um, it's in one way easier to learn new things about iOS development today than it was when I started, for example, or when actually, you know, when people started the day it was possible to do third-party app development for iOS, they didn't have any resources, Yeah, literally. So I think in one way it's easier today, but in one way it's much more difficult because, you know, the internet is full of resources and it is actually changing a lot more frequently than it used to. So I think it's it could be very difficult to distinguish, you know, between what is crucial knowledge, what is big companies fulfilling their needs with great solutions for large-scale software, or what is very smart people playing around with Swift, producing amazing things that mortals don't even necessarily understand. So I think there are a lot of resources out there. Uh, maybe the first step is to try to understand what is for you. Like, for example, for me today, I have a lot of, uh, I read and listen to and watch a lot of good resources on, on Swift because I've only been working with Swift in the past half year, so I have, I still have a lot to catch up with. Um, but you know, when I'm reading about amazing, huge frameworks from, you know, developed uh, by huge corporate companies, I feel like, yeah, that's, that's amazing, but that's something not for me. So I don't, I don't necessarily go there and read about that because I know I have limited time and, and brain capacity. So I think it's, it's, it's important to, to try to um, distinguish between what resources are um, actually helping you and what resources are things that you might not need right now. And maybe it's like a lot of distraction from, um, from your goals of learning this. Yeah, that's a really good point. There's definitely like, you know, this challenge of trying to make something out of all the noise, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want to call, you know, all the great documentation noise, but yeah, you see what I mean. It's, um, there's a lot to kind of go through. So I think, you know, trying to find some concrete topics that you want to learn about, like, for example, if you want to learn you know, how to really master a UI collection view yeah. or how to render something using core animation or the UI view animation API to dig into that and just see what's available and then look at a couple of different sources and solutions and not just take the first one and say, okay, this is the, this is the, 
uh, only solution or like you say look at some maybe an open source project from a huge company and say oh this this is clearly the way to go uh, but rather look at a couple of different ones maybe fire up a playground and try some of them out and see kind of what fits your style and what you think solves the problem you're facing yeah and and i think another good advice is to uh, if you're just starting out, work with other other people. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is the thing that got me here. Like, I've been working with amazing people all along. So I learned. I think I definitely learned most of the most of my knowledge from other people. Um, I think that's the the easiest way to to consume valuable knowledge. So. There you have a person with experience who already decided what resources are important to know and they just hand it over to you in the most consumable way. So um, I think I think this is the most important. I also know people who started out as freelancers and they're amazing. So you could be one of those people. Uh, I'm one of the people who who would have needed years to, you know, try something as being a freelancer because I, I don't know, I, I felt like working with other people, you know, inspires me the most. Great. So I think that's all the questions that we have time for for this episode. I want to thank everybody who sent in questions. They were really great. And we'll make sure to save uh, some of the questions for an upcoming episode. And I know you told me, Agnes, that some of the questions that were specific for you, you want to kind of reach out and answer them uh, later as well. Yes, yes, definitely. I'm going to do that on Twitter. That's perfect. So um, if you want to ask a question for an upcoming episode, you can do so by going to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast or just tweet to at swiftbysundell on Twitter. You can also follow at Swift by Sundell on Twitter to get the latest updates about the show, the blog, and also some new exciting projects that will be coming soon. Uh, on the next episode, my guest will be G Rambo. And this guy, he doesn't only have the coolest name in the entire iOS community. Uh, he's also a really great developer. Uh, you might have seen him lately in some Apple-related news because he was one of the guys that actually extracted a lot of the information from this leaked HomePod firmware and the iOS 11 GM. So uh, he was one of the people who kind of posted a lot of the information before the Apple event. So we're going to talk a lot about reverse engineering, which I think is going to be really exciting. Uh, he also made a WWDC app for macOS. So we'll, we'll talk about that for sure as well. So make sure to send some questions uh, if you have something that you would like me and G to talk about. So we've reached the end of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Agnes, for joining me on this show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a, was a pleasure. So if people want to reach out to you online, uh, where should they go? Twitter, definitely. So my handle is very Hungarian. It's <laughs> Vasher Hey All. So I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Th that, no was, that was an early decision in my career to go for that handle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same here. Yeah, otherwise, I probably would have tried to take something shorter. But yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Great. So yeah, make sure to uh, follow Agnes on Twitter. And thank you everybody for listening. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.